welcome to the Presto Music Podcast. The worlds of classical music and comedy, though they may seem strange bedfellows, have nonetheless produced some highly entertaining offspring over the years, from the infant days of Haydn's musical jokes through to its current golden child and guest today, Raina Hirsch. So, who better to take a trip with through the cavalcade of classical comedy featuring the likes of Victor Borger and Anna Russell than a man who has not only written and performed comedy shows to packed audiences, including All Classical Music Explained and Rainer Hirsch's Instruments of Mass Destruction, but also conducted orchestras from as far afield as Russia and Canada. Welcome to the show, Rainer Hirsch. Hey, thank you very much. Lovely to be here. As an introduction to the world of classical comedy, let's sample some of Rainer's comedy stylings. Here's an excerpt from the only choral album you'll ever need, two. Let me introduce you to the London Firebird Orchestra. Each is a soloist in their own right. It's when they have to play together there are problems. <laughs> Do you want to say hello to them? One, two, three. Hello. Orchestra, say hello. Hello. They're very nice. Now, they're all experts, of course, very good players. The only thing is, as you noticed during that piece, they're not all playing all the time. Some of them, like the triangle player, for example, only when I look at him. <laughs> so what are they doing the rest of the time? They're counting the notes go by until it's their turn to play again. They're counting what we call the bars, or in America, the measures. Either way, both terms normally associated with drinking. <laughs> now, within the bars, there are, of course, beats. Uh, you probably know this from school. Beats vary according to what sort of music you play. Four beats in a bar for symphonies. Three beats in a bar for waltzes. Six beats in a bar for country and western. Because the rule is, never have more beats in a bar than you can comfortably count on the fingers of one hand. First of all, Rainer, what are your inspirations, both comedically and musically? Well, I grew up watching Monty Python and that means that I was watching the reruns on BBC Two. I, I, I'm not old enough to have seen <laughs> the first one out, let me add. Nowadays, of course, you can watch anything, anytime, anywhere. But in my day, we were basically, in my day, we were, you know, we were basically reduced to watching it, uh, you know, late at night or whenever it was on BBC Two and talking about it in the playground afterwards. And we slightly obsessed about that me and my sort of friends. And I'm sorry to admit, and this is it's absolutely true, so I might as well say it out loud, we formed something called the Monty Python Appreciation Society. <laughs> yeah, it is, as, it is as dull, middle class <laughs> and predictable as, as it sounds. But so I think probably if I had any one uh, sort of influence, it was then. But I've got, I watched the Ford and Rise original Perrin, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide, that kind of stuff. But I didn't really come into, into the world of stand-up, which is where I kind of really, in inverted commas, developed as a comedian until I was probably into my, well into my 20s, really. I started performing comedy at university in a sketch show, equally terrible. But I did find that I, I could stand on a stage at that point and I could, uh, you know, I didn't mind facing an audience and talking to them. That didn't bother me at all. And I kind of quite enjoyed it, not in a sort of megalomaniac type way, but I enjoyed the fact that, you know, that interactive part. Of it. And when I left university, I started doing basically stand-up. And that's when I came across people like Bill Hicks and, um, you know, all of that, which, again, I obsessed about. And we repeated those things endlessly, me and my friend. But, I mean, I think what, what I subsequently thought was that kind of obsessive repetition was, in a way, 
a kind of school of comedy. You learned about timing and what was a joke and where a punchline was and how you delivered it uh, by rote. Um, so in as much as there is a school of comedy, and those were my influences, and that's the school I went to. Well, he certainly isn't the first composer to attempt to raise a laugh through music, there's no doubt that Haydn is the most famous classical composer to write music with a humorous intent. While several of his symphonies, including the 90th, False Ending, Il Distrato's deliberately out-of-tune finale, and perhaps most rudely, the 93rd symphony's flatulent bassoon, it's his string quartet, Opus 33, number two, which carries the joke epithet, once again featuring a musical punchline, here performed by the Lindsays. Rainer, there's an anecdote of the great Enlightenment figure Fontenelle, who on his deathbed was asked if he had ever laughed. No, he replied, I never made ha-ha. Would you <laughs> say that Haydn's musical jokes are mostly witty rather than laugh-out-loud funny? They are. That is a, that is a, a line which I would draw in musical <laughs> comedy. Um, I'd say, I'm not saying ha-ha is a very kind of old European thing to say, actually. I never made it have a ni ha ha gemacht. It's the kind of sort of thing you'd expect a kind of elderly German. <laughs> but actually, of course, he laughed. He hadn't laughed. He'd be inhuman. I mean, it's one of the things somebody pointed out about Lord of the Rings. There's no comedy in Lord of the Rings. There's no even, not even an irony. Comedy kind of does make the world go round. It makes music go round as well. I mean, you might point to those things of Haydn and so on. But actually, there's a hell of a lot of, you know, lightheartedness in, in, or, or levity or, you know, lighter mood in in all music and if there wasn't if it was all you know funeral marches uh even even in the funeral march with chopin you know there's the, 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 the kind of little bit of a lighter moment so, yeah and scherzo of course you know let's not you know dwell on that but it's you know it's there is comedy in terms of that question i think it's a very important distinction for me i have transposed tried to transpose let me just say stand-up comedy into classical music into that environment you might think how does that happen how's that how's that how does that work well i mean probably if you if, if you're wondering that and go online and, and, and have a look at some of the videos i hope that you'd agree that you know the punchlines are important to me and they 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 can't be too far apart i think basically i'm looking for the audience to really to laugh and i often say that to orchestras when we're beginning work we are going for the jugular here we're not just going for some you know some chuckles and me turning around to the audience and going, ha, ha, that was in G minor, yes. not the yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fanar, fanar. I, I said K313. Actually, I'm in K414. <laughs> Get it? Um, yeah. 
it has really got to hit the audience in the eye and uh, or in the face, really. You've really got to be very obvious with it. Maybe that has changed since the time of Haydn when, you know, there was only this type of music. Now, with um, all the stimuli that we have, you have to be that bit more obvious. And now, perhaps with the knowledge of music being what it is, which is relatively, you know, pond life compared to how it used to be, I think even 50 years ago in the time of Victor Borger, who I know we'll get on to. So you have to be much more obvious with it. But I do steer away from things which cease to have that laugh punchline moment and i'm really going for that into the area of you know wit musical wit there's there's a place for that and it's wonderful let, let me not knock it but that's not what i'm going for yeah. and it's not what the people that you mentioned in your introduction are really going for another one we'll get on to is pdq bach who who uh for me if you're listening to the track and the audience is no longer laughing then you have veered into that uh, really, I'm listening for the audience to be laughing all the way through and at the end, not laugh at the beginning at the interesting idea or laugh at the end at the witty bit of the moment, but actually laughing all the way through. So one has to one has to observe that, and how one does it is 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 a great trick. And I've driven down the wrong avenue many a time, thinking something was hilarious when it turned out not to be, and also thinking that something was too obvious to be worth. Any you know any kind of reaction at all turns out to be the hit of the evening. Yes, I was at a performance of the Haydn 90th Symphony, which features a false ending, and I got a sense that there was a certain group of people who were laughing at people who applauded in the wrong place because they felt, oh, they don't they don't get it, they don't get the joke because they don't know the piece, which I think can be a bit off-putting, certainly to somebody who who didn't who isn't familiar with with the piece and necessarily with classical music as well. Yeah, no, and I, I really I, I hate that. It's you know. Yeah. I, I struggle with that kind of the snobbery in classical music. I mean, we know what we're talking about. That it's, it's, it's a very broad term for a complicated issue, really. Aren't we clever? We get it. You don't, you fools. And therefore, it's laughing at yeah. people. And I, I yeah. never really got, I just don't enjoy that. I don't enjoy that. When I meet people who don't know much about music, well, you know, you talk to them in a way that, you know, they, they hope they'll appreciate, but interact with them about music. And uh, the, the, the people who will bore you endlessly about the golden age of Wagner singers and, and <laughs> I wrote was wonderful in 1930-something and haven't you heard the wonderful, you know, I just, yeah. I have to say I, I struggle with that and it does exist quite a lot on a well-known radio station. That we're, <laughs> that we're aware of. I, I guess, who are you talking to? You are talking to a handful of retired antiques dealers in the home county, basically, and I, I really, I resent, I kind of personally resent it, and I resent it on the part of other people. Yeah, I mean, there are other false endings, of course. I mean, the Meditation from Thais has a has a famously false ending, as <laughs> as the invitation to the dance, uh, Weber. Um, so you know, not not intentionally. I mean, I suppose the Haydn thing was kind of intended for his audience, and that's fine because you can imagine it in his very closed audience they would have you know they'd have laughed it they've enjoyed it because they'd have been ready for, to clap now it's turned into fanar fanar aren't you aware that you fall yes. in yes. 1760 something rather the, the people were sitting in esterhazy and they were <laughs> they were laughing at that and you thought you don't realize that it's a joke that we all know about i mean yeah it's yeah. and it, we kind of yeah 
so there it is. But it is still, you know, worthy worthy of it. I'm not saying it isn't. I'm just saying, you know, let's put it in context. It's, Absolutely. Well, if Haydn's jokes require a semblance of knowledge of sonata form, then the comedy stylings of the great Dane, Victor Borger, had and continued to have much broader appeal. Borger, who fled to the USA before World War II, was a fine concert pianist himself. Rainer, would it be right to call him, alongside such figures as Spike Jones, the godfather of classical music comedy? Uh, yeah, I think it would. I mean, he's the one that people know now. There were precedents for him. And now, if you stick your head above the parapet and do jokes which involve classical music, people will say, ah, oh, just like Victor Borger. I mean, I used to have every single review that I got was about Borger, so much so, actually, I wrote a show about Borger. I made a radio programme about Victor Borger, and uh, I wrote a show about him, which I played Borger, and I started the show... I, I played Borger and me in this show. It's called Rain Hershey's Victor Borger. Hey. And I had to do an impression of Victor <laughs> You might not remember that. I, if, you're about, if we're about to listen to him, you, you will recognise that I'm nothing like him. But, you know, if you stand on the <laughs> and you're the only reference point, people will think, oh, my God, it's exactly like him. Well, he had, he had a – for a start, they, Borger, Borger was from Denmark, and often people get that wrong. They, he wasn't he was somehow sort of Czechoslovakian or something, and they also say Borgia to about his name. He, he, well, it, he was like, not related to a famous uh, family. Family no. poisoners, yeah. And that that's, <laughs> he was he always said himself Borga, and so I mean, it is any pronunciation is possible depending on what language you speak, I suppose. But he 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 had a, he was from Denmark. And he had this. He had a Danish accent. Now Danish accent. It's like this is to me Danish accent. It's almost like a lot of people who have been to Scandinavia and they've watched a little bit too much <laughs> EastEnders. It's a little bit like Cockney. And then you have, you have Amer American accent. Any kind of American accent you put them together, and you end up with Victor Borger. And this is Victor Borger. And he had a sort of. He had a way of talking very in a very homely way. About, I will tell you about my father. He was the one we had very much trouble with because he once swallowed a pill that makes you look 15 years younger. And that almost killed him because he was only 12 at the time. You know, those, <laughs> um, I used to get that a lot. People have stopped doing it now. As Borger has kind of, to be honest, I'm afraid, faded away a little bit. He died in the year 2000. And Borger had it before him. But he is the one people still remember, uh, although I'm afraid to say that is fading rather somewhat. To me, he combined uh, the skills of a pianist, and he was a good pianist. Yeah. Um, we mustn't really imagine that he'd foregone a career on the concert platform. He knew that, actually. But listen, he was a president, he was a showman, and his USP was that a, a concert pianist gone AWOL is a man who's, you know, stopped playing his Rachmaninoff concerto and turned around to the audience and was telling them jokes. But he, he combined that with real comic timing and real comic chops and also chops as a clown. You know, he, he fell off that piano in a way that, you know, Charlie Chaplin might have done. And that combination really makes him unique for me. And I, I've studied it a little bit, as you might imagine. <laughs> and I really have watched everything that he did for that show. Uh, people often say, you know, and I, the reason kind of why I stopped that doing that show was I, I, don't want, I never really used him as a model. I found it very interesting to find somebody who had done all that stuff before. It's like cutting a path through the jungle to come across another path that somebody had hacked 50 years previously, basically. Um, I kind of stopped doing it a little bit because, um, well, as I say, his, his name is less well known now. And I also, 
I do my own thing. I'm doing this show because I was, you know, I kind of thought it was a name worth repeating. And I thought it was a story worth telling. It was a very interesting story he had. It reminded me a lot of my own sort of my own family's history. He escaped from uh, Denmark. He was Jewish. Uh, I'm not Jewish. Neither, neither was my father, but my grandfather was. And they came to Britain in 1939 because of that. Anyway, so I reminded all of that and I found it very interesting. But, you know, I once went to a we're doing a radio show in Australia and somebody, well, this we've got Raina Hirsch. Raina is one of the leading Victor Borger impersonators. <laughs> oh, no. And I thought, I'm not. <laughs> you're the only leading Victor I Borger impersonator. Well, I, I suppose you're right, technically. <laughs> um, anyway, so the Spice, in a long answer to a short question, yeah, he is now regarded as the godfather but maybe as his name fades and I get the longevity prize, I might be considered, <laughs> and then there'll be somebody else. So, yeah. you know what I mean? That's how it works. Yeah. Well, here's Borger's take on a Mozart opera. As with all Borger performances, the Baldwin Piano Company have asked me to add the disclaimer that Borger is, in fact, performing on a Steinway piano. <laughs> now I take you to the opera house where you hear the conductor's footsteps when he enters the orchestra pit. Here he comes. He walks sideways. <laughs> and this is the overture. <laughs> this, ladies and gentlemen, was the first part of the overture. Now you hear the second part, and that's exactly the same. <laughs> in case we shoot one shot of bloops. But that has never happened, so we have a lot of bloops left over. Many people have asked me what middle pedal on these pianos is for. Well, the middle pedal is there to separate the other two pedals. <laughs> yes, Borger's performance style, this sort of very straight face, but the humour is actually, in many ways, quite silly. Uh, it's a classic comedy juxtaposition, again, of the serious and the silly, perhaps. Well, it's interesting, I think, about Borger is, you know, he's, he's thought of as being the musical comedian par excellence. But his, his two most famous routines, which listeners may remember, one is phonetic punctuation, where he replaced punctuation marks with noises. And the other is where, you know, darling, uh, that kind of thing, which I've done endlessly, by the way, you know, in that show. And the other one is inflationary language, uh, where he raised by one, all the words which apparently contain numbers. Beautiful, <laughs> oh. uh, so wonderful, beautiful. Tonight becomes three night, and so on. You know, his probably best known routines, or what he's really famous for, are verbal, yeah. his verbals, not actually the musical bit. So, you know, um, that's, I think, quite interesting when you put it in the context of him being regarded as being, you know, this person who established the genre. Well, Borger's perhaps more gentle style of comedy gave way, in the UK at least, to the harder-edged satire boom of the early 60s. Beyond the Fringe, from 1960, featured the extraordinary talents of Jonathan Miller, Peter Cook, Alan Bennett, and, entertaining himself on the pianoforte, Dudley Moore. Moore's parodies of Beethoven, Benjamin Britten, Kurt Vaughan, and Franz Schubert, among others, remain remarkably well-known 60 years after their creation. 
Rainer, these are pitch-perfect parodies, but do you feel they need a high level of knowledge about these composers to get the joke? Um, I think his most famous routine, which I think we're about to hear, um, is got by anybody. It is a great sort of extrapolation, if you will, on the Colonel Bogey motif. And audiences, whatever their wash or colour or interest, I mean colour in terms of you know, politics or otherwise, not, not physical, um, uh, will get this joke, um, you know, and especially the ending, which um, is something I'm intimately familiar with because uh, I transcribed it for a concert in 2009 when, you know, I worked very hard to do that. And it works. And the people that played it, I didn't play it for that. I played uh, a few people have played that transcription. But I think the other ones, for example, he made parodies of nursery rhymes as sung by Peter Pears. That does take very specific knowledge. And I think, you again, you've got to put it into context. At the time when he did it, the early 60s, Peter Pears, Benjamin Britman, they were a feature on, on telly and radio. People knew who they were. You know, they, they'd heard that sound. And again, classical music was more familiar than it is today. So we will get it because we've heard those recordings because it's our thing and we like listening to those mu that music and especially the um, folk songs, um, Sally Gardens and so on, which were performed by Peter Pears. I mean, if you've kind of been up and down the repertoire, you would have come across that and you get that joke. I think if you stopped... 10,000 people in the street now. I'd be surprised if yeah. two of them knew it. Um, so I think it's falling out of currency. But, I mean, does that mean it's not funny? No, it means it's still funny, but it, the, the pool of audience which will get the joke is is a lot less. And, you know, when you're a comedian on the stage, you're really, you're, you're, you're trying to weed out those things in your set and your in your routine, which make it less accessible. Um, any turns of phrase which might be a little bit hard to hear or difficult to understand. Those those are the things that stand-up comics work on. That doesn't quite work. I changed credit card to whatever it is, check card, or whatever it is. I mean, you're really working on those in, infinitely small details to make things work. And one thing you are, of course, you will ditch straight away is anything where you find only, you know, two out of 10,000 people who get it. That isn't a good return, as far it as you're concerned. Return, but, you know, this is the age of the internet. <laughs> as previously discussed, I mean, um, in the world out there, that is still quite a lot of people <laughs> will get that joke and enjoy it. So there it is, you know, it's still worth listening to, but you've got to put it in context. Okay. It's of its time. Yeah. Raina, I believe you've actually managed to cajole some of today's leading concert pianists to actually play uh, Dudley Moore's And the Same to You, which features the Colonel Bogey March. Yeah, um, so in 2009, I did a concert at the Festival Hall with a list of the great and good, including Alfred Brendel did it um, <laughs> as a poet. He literally just retired, so we had to put Alfred Brendel back as poet on the listing. <laughs> and I did get him to do something, which is, you know, I told the audience, he hasn't retired, he's just gone part-time. <laughs> and we played the opening of the Greek Piano Concerto. It was me and the, I'm conducting the Philharmonia, he's at the piano, and Paul Lewis is standing just behind him. So the orchestra goes, blah, 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 chum, and he goes, chung, the great A minor chord before the kind of descending octaves. Then he slipped off the piano stool and 
Paul Lewis plays, da da dum, and he walked off to a big round of applause, actually, oh. uh, which was fun. Except that one thing I must tell you that you know, it was the most amazing thing to 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 have that in you know performance with him. Um, I had actually bumped into him a couple of times, but only as a kind of fawning uh, backstage grim. <laughs> you know how it yeah. is. I was backstage with him, and um, he had the number one just dressing room. I had number two, number two dressing room, despite the fact that I was on the stage the entire time. Very <laughs> <laughs> fitting. And by the way, I couldn't get my dressing room to open, so I had to sleep <laughs> in, kind of, in the kind of kitchen or something when I wanted my snooze. Uh, but anyway, I went around to his dressing room and I had a, the complete Beethoven sonatas, which he recorded, I think, for Vanguard was the label. You know, one of his yeah, very, yeah, um, yeah. you know, it was, it was that very early set of recordings that he did. For, and it was reissued on a few labels. But I think Vanguard, I think I think that's the name. Uh, All Vox, of them. I think, perhaps, yeah. It was called, well, Vox, yeah, but it, I think I got it on that. Maybe I couldn't remember Vox. Yeah, but I bow to your greater knowledge. And it includes everything, the bagatelles, you know, every random bit of... W-O-O that there is out there and of course all the sonatas and the concertos and all the random bits and pieces as well and uh, talking to him for 20 minutes he signed the little program book that I had for that and it was terribly you know it's one of the special moments uh, to be able to do that and I you know like I said I bump into him occasionally because I, I kind of know one or two people who know him basically but always I'm the fawning you know adolescent as opposed to you know the artist of equal <laughs> which I was for a brief 20 minutes uh, anyway um, so I um, wanted in that concert Paul Lewis to play the uh, to do something funny we ended up doing a routine based on Beethoven Emperor Concerto you know after the opening condenser there's this massive long tutti it goes on for about three minutes or something and I was like it's a very long time for the pianist to sit doing nothing what would the pianist do so i kind of invented a card game for us we went out into the audience and took photos of one another one another and 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 you know it's just scrambled back just in time for him to go me the you know we we finished that pete you know basically after the twitter we brought it to an abrupt end because as previously discussed once the joke's over let's get off anyway i i originally wanted him to play this Dudley Moore thing, and I transcribed it for him to do that. Uh, it no transcription then existed that I knew of, and believe me, I looked. It, I'm not very good at that kind of thing. Some people are just brilliant at it and whiz it down, and it's fine. It took me about three weeks. I wrote it out, and then actually Paul Lewis, I'm, I'm too busy, busy to learn it. I'm afraid I can't. So we ended up doing this Emperor Concerto, but uh, Piers Lane played it in a, in a sister concert we did up in Bridgewater Hall, and subsequently Mark Andre Amelin or Hamilton, as he sometimes <laughs> what his audience is, uh, he played it too. And Mark Andre Hamilton, um, I've got a, there is actually a YouTube clip uh, with me introducing him. He did that also at the festival hall in a, in a later concert about five years later. So it did eventually get played a few times. And yes, you know what an amazing thing to have kind of brought that back a little bit, bit into currency. And I believe Piers Lane has subsequently recorded my transcription, which is of course great. Well, let's sample that now.
And here's another excerpt of the piece performed by Dudley Moore himself. Listening to this piece performed by both a concert pianist and Dudley Moore, you do notice the importance of actually having a comedian performing it. Watching Dudley Moore, there's so much of the enjoyment is of Moore's performing it, especially in his asides to the audience as the piece continues and refuses to end. It does show the extraordinary talent of Dudley Moore, both as a comedian and a musician. Absolutely. I mean, he, he really, he was, an, he was an organ scholar at Oxford, so he, he really could play. He was a great improviser. And above all, as I mentioned with Borger, he had comedy skills. And that is um, something you can learn. I don't think you're necessarily born with it. You can pick it up. You can pick it up by rote. But you kind of have to have it. And without it, without that kind of comedic timing, um, it's harder to sell the piece. Um, when Piers Lane played it, he, he flatteringly asked my advice about how to deliver it, and um, as did Mark Andre Hamilton. I mean, I did. I think that the comedy is written into the music. One just has to nod to the audience. You know, these little moments of slight exasperation. This thing is ending, and I can't stop it. Yeah. <laughs> just give yeah. them a look, which acknowledges that yeah. what they are thinking, and you will get the laugh. But it, you need to see that laughter. Yeah in the sense of you have to provide a punchline to it, a punchline not necessarily verbal, but you have to give a hint. This is a moment you are supposed to be laughing, and that little look and the little looks that Dudley Moore gives, because he wrote the thing, he played it endlessly, and he did play it a lot, that transcription. You know, he, he practised what, what worked and what didn't, and a concert pianist who's not given to that, basically they're so tied up with trying to produce the notes that they're not used to, you know, addressing the audience in that way. So it's a skill one learns, I think. But, you know, comedy timing is what Dudley Moore had in spades. Yeah. Beethoven himself was, of course, no stranger to parody with his famous metronome movement of his Eighth Symphony. I get the impression that Beethoven had a keen, if perhaps dark, sense of humour himself. Would you be right to think that Beethoven's music is perhaps the most ripe for parody of all classical composers? Well, actually... Beethoven has got this kind of reputation as being terribly serious. He's German for a start, and you know, yeah. Germans have got yes. a sense of humor. So yeah. there we go. He's off. He's right out of the traps. He's a he's a loser. But I actually think that Beethoven's music has got a lot of humor in it. Yeah. I think, of particularly, if you listen to the Bagatelles, which, you know, not exactly on the uh, takeoff pad of most classical listeners, it's something you come across, uh, especially if you're a pianist. But they're based on little comic ideas. Some of them are very short, 50, 40 seconds, those, that kind of time. 
and they're based on little comedic ideas. They're based on theatrical ideas. I think a lot of his his music is theatrical. You know, even da 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 da. It's a theatrical gesture, and it's a guy saying, "Hey, what would it be like if we try to convert, you know, four notes into a whole movement?" Mm. That's basically what he's saying to me. And of course, it's got this kind of it. It, it grows these kind of wings of its own and then takes off and everybody thinks oh well, you know okay this is the this is the expression of serious germanness I and mean, there are elements in that dudley moore which are reflecting things that actually happen in beethoven and once you go to the the end of the fifth symphony you know which is like that pretty much yeah. but you know so if you double that and redouble that and add a few other you know credential sort of elements then you end up with what dudley moore had i don't think though it's the most parodiable of any music it's just his reputation has kind of grown like that you might think actually you know if there's any parodiable music it's richard wagner the trouble is the canvas is so broad with richard wagner and the music is frankly so unknown i really do mean that you know because can really you go out of a massive four hour opera and can you honestly even whistle <laughs> up tune from uh, um, Tristan, can you honestly? Da, 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 you can't even whistle it. <laughs> I mean, so the, it's very. It's, you can you and just parodying the length of something. So it's very long. You know, doing something that isn't funny because you've drifted very quickly, as referring to our previous conversation, into wit, not actual comedy. comedy. Brevity is the soul of wit, it's and true. is that right? Yes. And so. Um, Borger would have done something like that. Um, and actually, I kind of paraphrased a Borger joke in, 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 in the show I did about him, actually, which was, he'd sit down on the piano and go, these two chords are the last two notes of the ring cycle. That saves us four days. <laughs> so, okay, that's a funny way of referring to it. But the music itself oh. is very difficult to parody because it's so expansive, really. Whereas Beethoven, da-da-da-da, that is easy because there you've got in that in those four notes some it says Beethoven to you. In that sense, you know, in the sense of his Germanness, yes, of course, blah blah blah. Especially in the UK and so on, the Germans don't think of him as, you know, <laughs> and you know, there's more of them than us, and they know about more about their music than us. I think in terms of the kernels of theatrical gesture. That Beethoven presents, That's by true. which I mean, da 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 da, or yeah, all these kind of, or whatever it is. Yeah, that means something you can say in a very short time, which says Beethoven and which you can use to to grow from. As long as, again, referring to our earlier conversation, the audience is with you when you make those statements. And you know, ba -da -dee -da -dee -da -dee -da 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 you know, that's enough to say Beethoven um, and a few other tunes. So yes and no. <laughs> if Moore's parodies represent the higher brow of the classical comedy spectrum, then some of the American composer Peter Schickeles, aka PDQ Bach, the only deceased composer ever to receive a commission, at times subversive and at times slapstick compositions represent a very American take on the shibboleths of the classical music world, with Charles Ives perhaps being something of a precedent. What have you picked from this titan of the classical comedy world? Well, I uh, love all the PDQ Bach, but it is, I'm afraid to say, very much in the area of Fnaf and wit quite a lot of the time. There are over 15 albums. I think there were 17 or 18, actually. For my money, the ones that really work are the ones he did in front of an audience, as opposed to the ones he did in the studio. Yeah. 
for example, there's a whole album uh, which John Kimura Parker recorded for him of sort of Predators and Fugues based on you know the Bachian idea of Predators and Fugues. I can't remember the title now. There is um, the 1713 Overture or whatever it is called. Well, I've forgotten the exact 1712. 1712 Overture. It's on the same canvas as the original 1812 Overture. And as I've, you know, sorry to go on about it, but it's too long. <laughs> um, whereas when you're in front of an audience, you really are required to make the audience laugh. Um, and he's mindful of that as well. The first album that I ever had of P.D. Bach was the portrait of P.D. Bach or a portrait of P.D. Bach, on which features uh, the Mr. Hilarious, which I always really enjoyed. I mean, I don't know why it is. And it's got one of the really kind of, Moments which, for me, maintain the comedy quotient over pretty much the whole piece. And I'd chosen the Gloria from the Missa Hilarious. With lines like Gloria, Gloria, I just met a girl called Gloria, you don't feel that this can sometimes be a touch sacrilegious? Are there any forms of classical music that you wouldn't parody or satirise? A requiem, for example. No. <laughs> it's all fair game. <laughs> As regards to that question, I have done the Miss Hilarious a few times, and once at the Festival Hall, actually. Um, and... When one needs to use an amateur choir because you know we did actually we did that with Crouch Home Festival Chorus who are more immune to such questions. But I once did it in Leicester at um, the Monfort Hall uh, with a great choir, you know, and hats off to them. And, but you know, amateur choirs, uh, you know, have a great mix of people. Some of whom are very religious, and some of whom, if you flag up that this is a parody of a religious form or you know a setting, will put the hand up and say, you know, I'd rather not take part in that. Offending people is part of the game, actually, of a comedian, I'm afraid. Not in the sense of saying swear words or talking about sex or anything. It's just that some people are offended about stuff. And as a comedian, you kind of have to develop a bit of a thick skin about that. What is valid and what is not? really. And in today's sort of climate, where people are being hypersensitive, and I'm not talking, you know, as a phenomenon, you know, this is, this is political correctness gone mad. It's not that. I really, I mean, I come out of that generation as well that doesn't tell racist jokes, 
you know, doesn't do that stuff anymore. I, I was in the new wave of comedy, so to speak. But there is a hypersensitivity where people cannot tell one thing apart from another anymore. They just hear you say one word and it's enough to set them off, whatever it is. So that's just the subject of, you know, sensitivities. I mean, people can start to complain on behalf of the musicians in my shows. Little knowing that the musicians are the yes. ones who really are enjoying it the most. Most, yeah. They're absolutely loving that they're no longer having to play, you know, yet another performance of you know, Schubert C Major Symphony or whatever it is. And there's this guy, and he's really, I hope, using his wit, I hope, I mean, I'm sorry, forgive me for saying that, but wit, musicality, intelligence to play with these concepts. But I, I get letters afterwards. I was ashamed for the musicians. And what are you talking about? It really makes me want to weep, actually. So it's that kind of offence that I think I'm talking about. Um, in terms of, you know, well, once you've done, you know, the, a Mr. Hilarious based on the mass, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing left, really. I mean, really? <laughs> I mean, but what are you, you're playing with the form. That's what oh, he's yes. doing. He's playing with the form. He's not saying God doesn't exist yeah. or this is rubbish or all other masses are rubbish. And I always think, you know, listen, the mass will survive. <laughs> and, the, and the literature of classical music stretching back to Bach and beyond will survive these things. <laughs> Are you not, do you not get a little bit of sense of perspective on this? Um, So, yeah, I mean, in this particular case, yes, certain very religious people um, will will take that stance. And especially, it surprised me actually uh, that that isn't more so in America. And by the way, I once met Peter Shickley. I went into doing an interview with him. I went to Arkansas to see the Arkansas Symphony Philharmonic. Something he did a concert with them anyway. He was down there, you know, on a on a on a three concert thing, and I went to see him and made a program about him and interviewed him. And I did actually say that, uh, you know, are people, you know, because I'm saying I'm voicing my own experience here and saying, you know, are people offended, especially with this a mass uh, setting of that? Or you know, there's also one called the Seasonings. He's got, you know, which is you know based on Haydn's Seasons and also. I mean, he's got various things. And he said, well, I never force anybody to do anything in my concerts. For example, there's a routine he has where he has two sports commentators commenting on Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, the opening movement. And it's, you know, here he is. He's come to first. But what's this? The old ball's completely gone on his own. It's that kind of stuff. I can't remember. Yeah. Um, I once the pleasure of doing that, actually. In- but that is actually also a wonderful parody of sports commentators as well. It is. I mean, again, it, it goes for my money. It goes on a bit too long, but there it is. <laughs> so, uh, I am. I am a comedy fascist, as you probably <laughs> as I lured you into interviewing me. Um, but nevertheless, he, he said, you know, in that he gets the orchestra to wear like sports, like I don't know what you call it, whatever it is they wear in, in baseball or <laughs> football. He gets them to put on little jersey things over their tuxes. And he says to them, you know, at the beginning of the rehearsal, listen, if you don't want to do it, it's absolutely fine. You know, don't worry about it. It's cool. And he always runs out of jerseys, basically. They all want to do it. Um, In my thing, I've often got the orchestra to play, you know, recorder, for example, discount recorder. We've all got discount recorders together. And um, 
And if you don't want to play it, that's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm usually short of recorders. But there are one or two people who don't want to do it, and that's fine. Don't, you know, in a pool of people as big as an orchestra, 60, 70 people, it's the same as, you know, the world at large. There are some people who are going to take offence. So one has to be sensitive. Uh, one has to be realistic, and one has to use a bit of judgment. And there are occasions, by the way, when I have been pulled up by members of the audience. Why do you say this? Why do you say that? Uh, when I've actually asked members of the orchestra or I've asked an affected group, for example, here's a joke, for example, which, which again, might flash up to it. I'm not, I'm not, people ask me, and this is true, I've been often asked, am I gay? I'm not gay, actually. People ask me that. I'm not, I'm not, people ask, is my hair perm? It's not perm. People ask me, am I Jewish? I'm not Jewish. I've got nothing against those things. I've not. Recently, I was talking about all that with my partner, Lionel, um, who's a hairdresser from Golders Green. And now, <laughs> okay, so... There, it mentions the word gay. Is that about gayness, that joke? Okay, maybe it is. Maybe some people think that's not acceptable. But I actually, I've, I've, I've got a, a very close friend who's discovered after in his mid-teens that he, he prefers the company of men, so to speak. And I officiated at his wedding because one needs somebody who's not, you know, not um, used to speaking out loud to officiate these things. And I asked him, and I, his coterie of male friends who, who I see regularly, who we went when he had his birthday last weekend. Is, what do you think about that? Is it offensive? Tell me that, you know, you can say to me, and said, no, there are just people who will always jump on that. They will have a knee jerk about that. Now, that is probably the most extreme joke I've ever told, if you can call it extreme. But um, musically, yeah, it's playing with concepts. It's playing with ideas. It's playing with forms. And you have, one has to ask yourself, is that really offensive? Or is just the person being extreme in their own way about their offence? Well, that's an excerpt from P.D. Kubar's commentary on Beethoven's Fifth. Good evening, music fans. Here we are at Philharmonic Hall in New York Mills, Minnesota. It's a beautiful night for a concert. There's not a cloud in the ceiling. And there's quite a crowd out here. Uh, about how many do you think there are, Bob? Oh, I don't know, Pete. Well, neither do I, but it's quite a crowd. And I think they're looking forward to hearing the New York Mills Philharmonic playing against the Danish conductor Heilige Dankesang. And here he comes now, ascending the podium, and the players are all lined up and ready to begin the first inning of Beethoven's Symphony No. 5 in C minor. And they're off with a four-note theme. This is very exciting. The beginning of a symphony is always very exciting, folks. I don't know whether it's slow or fast yet because it keeps stopping. It doesn't seem to be able to get off the ground yet, and it looks like... Yes, it looks like we're coming up to a cadence here, folks. Uh, the violins didn't cut off there. A little trouble with the violins. They weren't watching. And there's that four-note theme again, folks. And another stop. Just can't seem to get this piece off the ground. Now it seems to be rolling a little bit. Seems to be building up. Tell me, Bob, do you think you'd call that four-note idea a theme or a motif? Well, Pete, the uh, technical term would be motif. He uses to build a theme. I see. Thanks for setting me straight about that, Bob. Well, we're heading into the second theme section here, and we can expect a little modulation down there. Wow, did you hear that, Bob? Somebody down there in the horn section really flubbed that note. That was one of the worst fumbles I think I've ever witnessed in all my days. I think that was number one, wasn't it, Bob? Yes, it was, Pete. I've always been quite impressed with actually the education quality of this, uh, Rainer. It, it is possible to teach people while making them laugh. A rare achievement. Well, that's really nice uh, if that happens. You know, it is. Um, <laughs> it's not my objective. Um, 
But, you know, for example, this piece is written by Mozart. It's a symphony. He wrote his first symphony when he was four. It's rubbish, that symphony. Of course. <laughs> yeah, <And> agreed. <laughs> half of it's in crayon. But he went on and had a very successful <laughs> year. So, I mean, in, in saying that, I'm, the reason why I'm saying that is because I'm playing on the fact that people vaguely are aware that Mozart wrote kind of things when he was a child. You know, even, even the great unwashed, out, you know, you know what I mean? By some of which I mean somebody who never listens to classical music. It's a classical music trope that people are familiar with. Absolutely. And um, one is playing with that. And like I say, I'm trying to play with concepts that people are aware of. I'm not interested in the ones they're not aware of. <laughs> they won't get a laugh. But in saying that, in fact, he didn't write his first symphony when he was four, by the way. I think it was about nine or eight or nine. But the point is four is a funnier number than nine. So, uh, <laughs> so I use that concept. But the fact is you are repeating a bit of some information. And, yeah, in using the terminology, in, in, in talking around an orchestra, for example, uh, you know, over here we've got Brian, he plays the, um, the horn. Uh, he, you know, he, if you catch, they're pretty low down the food chain, horn players. Actually, when he's not playing, often you can see him turn to his mates and start grooming them for other insects. Or... <laughs> emptying spit out onto their carpet, you know, whatever they're talking about. And, and then in talking about, you know, talking about emptying spit out, you go, well, that's what he's doing with his horn, actually. Why would he do that? You're kind of telling people to look for that kind of stuff. This is a guy, he's a horn. Oh, that's the horn, is it? You know what I mean? All of that stuff uh, inadvertently does teach people, and that is great. My object has never been to do that. So when I meet people, I go, I see what you're trying to do. I see you're trying to educate the audience. Actually, do you know what? I'm trying to make them laugh by any means. I <laughs> not 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 literally by any means because <laughs> offend people. But I don't want to offend people. I really do not. Uh, but I I'm I'm sit down, you know, and that's the work of a professional comedian. And I try to think of mm -hmm. any joke I can which will work. Probably the bravery of stand up comedy is to go out there and actually try it. And if it doesn't work, never hears the sees the light of day again. Yeah, yeah. And if it does, then it develops into a routine which everybody thinks is brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's just the way it is. So, yeah, you are teaching. Well, people. that's probably quite similar to the process of composition. Yes, I think so. Unfortunately, <laughs> the, probably the process of the composition, it's like, um, as I know from making arrangements of pieces for orchestra to play, it's like a super tanker. And unfortunately, by the time, you know, you found that it doesn't work. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> it's too late. <laughs> Yeah, we well, had a lot of work to change the course of the thing, and you occasionally yeah. hit on, and in, in you've, got it, you've got it stuck in the Suez Canal, it's sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, you've got you've got a lot of work to do. But I mean, yeah, I mean it, that is what that is what you take on when you're a composer, mm. or when you when you make funny arrangements of orchestral things. Uh, you have to listen to the audience if you're trying to make them laugh. My rule is we, they've got to laugh, and if they don't laugh, I, I I I lose confidence in routines very quickly if they don't work, you know, twice in front of an audience. Um, so yeah, that's just the way it is. But you can obviously stand up. A stand up can go out there and change the form of words, or change the one word, or change the thing, or just ditch it all together. Very little cost. When you get orchestras involved, it is a massive task, obviously. Well, there's no more art form more expensive than opera and perhaps no art form more ripe for mickey-taking and perhaps no one has done it more famously than Anna Russell. Here's a sample of her take on Wagner's Ring of the Nibelungen. When meanwhile Siegfried tired of love on the rocks with Brunhilde <laughs> and Brunhilde's gone completely to pieces. <laughs> you remember her signature tune used to be Wait a woo, wait a woo, a 
Taking the ginger out of her. <laughs> Raina, making fun of the plots of operas is a bit like shooting fish in a barrel, isn't it? Yeah, you know, they are themselves <laughs> constructions. Um, you know, they are merely the hangers on which composers placed their tunes. I mean, they just hoped the libretto wasn't too terrible so that people could somehow stick it. Um, but really, these days, you kind of, I mean, does it really matter about, you know, if you see an opera like Norma or any, you know, any of those Bellini operas, I mean, it's so, it <laughs> makes you want to weep. <laughs> um, but Anna Russell has done it probably the most, most famous of anybody that's attempted that form. And I've seen a few other people try I actually met her too, actually. I'm sorry, this, I mean, I know this is a program where name dropping is probably. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we got you on. <laughs> uh, what is it? Name drops keep falling on my head, I think. <laughs> so forgive me all of that. I, I just hope it's interesting. Well, it sounds like I'm showing off, but I did actually meet her. I was touring in, in um, Canada when the very first days of my doing shows about music, the first show I wrote, which was all classical music explained. I went and did in some festivals in Canada and a radio producer from CBC, which is the BBC of Canada, uh, contacted me. I think was there was some press thing about what I was doing and said, um, I noticed what you're doing. I've just been talking to Anna Russell, you know, the Anna Russell. And um, <laughs> would you like to meet her? And she lives in Toronto and I was passing through Toronto. So, yeah, I stopped off and I met her. Um, she was probably in her 70s then. She uh, eventually, she moved to Australia in the end, which is where she passed away. She moved to live with her adopted daughter. I think I'm getting that right. And I met her and I had to spend an afternoon with her, which is a great a pleasure, of course. And, you know, so I can tell this story is wonderful. She lived in a retirement complex, which during her performing years, she had done gigs in order to support, you know, she'd done charity performances. And in thanks for that, they had named one of the avenues of this kind of, you can imagine it was like a gated complex. Think of that kind of thing. They'd named one of these avenues after her, which she then, as it happened, ended up living on. <laughs> <laughs> Must be confusing for the postman. So, yeah, she, but for him as well. And also when she went in banks or any other situation where she had to give her name and address, <laughs> person giving this information simply regarded as some dutchy old lady <laughs> one apart from another where do you live man? anna russell and what what's your name anna russell yes <laughs> and where do you live um yeah she was steeped in in opera I mean, she began in before she went to canada uh she was playing she was accompanying people as a kind of repetitor type person in london i'm at the college, I think it was, Royal College, um, but it might have been the Academy. Anyway, she was, that's what she was doing. She was, she was accompanying people in the singing classes. And so she got to know this stuff absolutely intimately, you know, from the, from the inside. And she was herself a singer. You know, she was, again, forgive me, strike me down. She was not a great singer, but does that matter? The point is she could combine her comedy talents 
with her talent for singing to create something unique. The same as Borga. Borga, not the greatest pianist in the world, not necessarily the greatest comedian. Find <laughs> them together is something exceptional and really very, very special. And that's what sets those people apart. And taking apart the ring cycle, which she was doing in the 60s, was, you know, you know what kind of people wanted to hear in an age when they did come they knew something vaguely about the ring cycle it's not good these days people just know it's long i think yeah the aficionados will you know they'll know it you know but even i think amongst the classical cognoscenti how many people could really tell you the complete story of what happens in the ring cycle tell you what happens at the end <laughs> i mean actually for myself i only found out <laughs> i don't know found out i only managed to watch the end of Demon, you know <laughs> years ago when opera north that 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 thing they did was put on the iplay and i thought all right i can watch it in 20 minute bits while i've been <laughs> on and i thought oh okay that's where uh the secret idol comes in right, and yeah. stuff like that so um yeah it's a very particular feel but she did it kind of brilliantly and it's still much loved and with good reason i mean in 15 minutes she managed to summarize this oh, thing a way that people kind of get yeah. and it's never really been achieved yeah doing that in a clever way it, it is rather hard because they're so ludicrous really um, and I think also the work of an opera singer to the average punter seems just a bit crazy, frankly. I mean, <laughs> a horned woman singing, belting that she's dying. <laughs> I am dying! I am dying! You know, it's like that really, okay, you don't sound like you're dying. Yeah. Um, that is that is a parody in, in of itself. So it's funny, I, I can't think of anybody that's really done that as successfully as her. Um, because she came from it from within from the inside and was able to sing and accompany herself, which is, you know, is again something that people admire watching this and think, well, she can really sing and yes, she can play the piano and yes, she can. She does know this stuff and you'll buy it off her, if you see what I mean. Buy the jokes off her um, when she's telling. Is there a danger that you can become over reliant on the tropes surrounding classical music and opera, and this is actually perpetuating them amongst people who might attend one of your shows but then not want to go to a classical concert? Um, I think yeah, there is a danger. Probably, I never broken off into small groups with myself to really discuss, you know, what that is, because as I've said, my aim is not to. It's not to educate. I'm trying to make an audience laugh, really. I don't feel any responsibility at all to classical music. Really? Uh, when I say that, I hope people understand I love the music. Yeah. I mean, today, it's quite early day, but I will spend an hour practicing my piano and I'll spend an hour practicing the viola and I will spend probably another hour variously listening to music somehow or other, maybe doing other work. Uh, I've grown up with it. It has been the passion that has completely changed my life and directed the course of my life. So don't think I don't love the music. It's just that I, it's a, you know, it's kind of every man for themselves. <laughs> so don't dog world out there, isn't it? Every man and woman for themselves, I must add. You know, I do think that if you are bringing these things before a public and showing, it is okay to laugh at this as well as, be moved to tears. You are going, you're doing it as service. You're doing it a service. Really, you are. You're saying, here am I, a music, a conductor. I, you know, with those kind of qualities, I hope that I can bring on the stage. And it's okay to find this a bit stupid, to yeah. find opera plots a bit ridiculous. Yes. But forget that. Let's <laughs> listen to this beautiful song. 
you know um it's okay because people think that anyway and what comedy a lot of comedy is observational comedy michael mcintyre and all that is pointing out those things but people have seen themselves but not realized were there or, you know not taken in and they've seen these opera plots and they might think goodness gracious that's absolutely ridiculous you're saying this is ridiculous but listen to this beautiful song um and it's okay and you know normalizing that is the work of a you know it's okay it's, it's, it brings it in into the you know, more public sphere. And I think people are more likely, actually, though this is not my aim, I do think people are more likely, especially if you've attracted into a concert hall through comedy, an audience that would not otherwise have been there. Once they've gone through the process of sitting down, watching this show, they've been through that stage once and they'll go through it again yeah, in order yeah. to watch something. Oh, there's this thing on. It's this, oh, this tune. You know, I've heard that. Yeah. Let's go and see that. That's going to happen, you know. And the the people who have been offended, well, frankly, you know, yeah. they're really not worth my time because for the reasons I describe, I think they're getting the wrong end of the stick yeah. and they're really not as clever as they think they are. So let them be offended. But I think on the whole, you're attracting a much bigger audience to it. Yeah, it can be a breaking the ice moment for many people, I'd imagine. Absolutely. It's okay. I saw, Oh, there's that tune. What is that tune he's yeah, doing? Yeah. Oh, I've had, you know, technicians. Well, I heard that on an advert for cereal or whatever. Exactly. It is that advert. That's that thing. And you, oh, you've set words to it or you've done mm. the thing or you changed that. Well, I got that joke. And, you know, if you, if you do it in a way that people get um, because they understand the references, even if they don't know they know the references, they'll feel more comfortable with the form and more comfortable with the process next time it comes around. You are looking as a professional stand-up for uh, things which people get. It's, and so I, I do. You know, I will ditch perfectly good ideas because the audience won't get it, you know, and I'm not interested in that. I've been fortunate to see and laugh at one of your shows, Rainer. Have you got any new shows in the works, and when can we see you next? Well, um, we're speaking in the time of corona, and, um, which has been a major catastrophe or live performing and um, unfortunately we're, we're in June now and it doesn't look like it's returning I mean people are not flocking back unfortunately to concerts. I did however two weeks ago just do a performance at Cadogan Hall the much delayed New Year's Eve concert <laughs> <laughs> it, it uh, was called at last the 2020 New Year's Eve concert um, in that I you know, I, I'm always working on new material because I get a very regular audience come to that. I and mean, half of it was kind of new stuff, including a 30-minute piece entitled Trump the Opera. Um, so, Following on from Nixon in China. Yeah. I don't, <laughs> I don't suppose that, what is it, the two-step will get quite as famous. What is it? Is it the waltz or whatever, the two-step? Um, so, yeah, it, ours was just roundly, you know, uh, making fun of that. And we used Barry Cryer as the narrator and a great cast. It was a bit of musical theatre more than it was. So uh, that, I'm just in the lee of that. And um, uh, I am working on new ideas for things which, you know, projects which are coming up. Um, principally, uh, you know, as ever happens every year, the New Year's Eve thing at Cadogan Hall. So please come see that. Please tune in on that. We will actually be streaming it as we did again on the 29th of May, which it was watched by more people than were in the concert hall, including people in Australia and in Ho Chi Minh City <laughs> and, in, and in Bogota. I'm not making that up, as well as lots of people in Europe uh, who I got pictures of, people that kind of had community viewings and projected it onto walls in their back garden and had all their friends around, which is great, you know, really exciting. And that's the one good thing that's come out of Corona. So the answer to your question is, um, 
I'm always working on, on new material. There's a lot of stuff that I have now, either for full orchestra or my own orchestra with a K O R K E S T R A, which is just to distinguish us from a regular orchestra. <laughs> Uh, no, no other reason uh, that people think it's Danish or something like that. Um, and, you know, watch this space as confidence returns. So we will be back. But, you know, I'm mainly uh, online really is where I have a lot of uh, profile. I have 16 million views on my YouTube channel, which is a lot of views for, especially for something doing, somebody doing something classical and actually performing classical, actually. So onward and upward. And I look forward to, you know, seeing you and uh, your <laughs> listeners um, and some venue near them. Fantastic. Well, in the meantime, you have some of Rainer's CDs and DVDs available from Presto Music. Rainer, thanks for your time and your jokes. And it's been a great pleasure. Thanks to Matt Groom for producing and thanks to you for listening. Mm-hmm.